Well, good morning. My name is Trey Corey. If you do not know me, I am the campus pastor here at Southwood and excited to be with you guys this morning. We're going to be in the book of Revelation. So if you have your Bibles, turn to the very end. We're going to be in the last two chapters of the great word this morning. As you're turning there, I'll just tell you guys a quick story from my college time. I had the opportunity when I was uh, rounding out my sophomore year at Texas A&M. Uh, thank you very much, uh, to actually get to spend a study abroad in Italy. a and has a campus, I think they still do, out in the southern part of Italy known as Santa Chiara. I had the opportunity to take six hours of engineering credit in the Italian countryside that summer, and it was amazing, all right? Uh, what the cafeteria did not have, the town had in gelato every single night. What else could you be missing, right? Uh, I'll admit to you guys, was also a little bit excited about the fact that that summer, there were 10 guys on the study abroad trip and there were 55 ladies. The odds were in my favor, or so I thought, that summer. Uh, and so I was excited for all that I thought the summer could be. And so as I led up to that summer, that spring, my buddy and I, who were going together, spent probably about two months researching all that we could for that trip. Uh, we looked into all kinds of transportation, from airplane tickets to train tickets to subway tickets to taxis. We looked into all kinds of accommodations, from hotels to hostels. We looked to, into cameras, into clothes, into customs. We bought travel guides. We bought language guides. We did all that we could to lay out and figure out how we're going to maximize these two months in Europe. We studied abroad for about six weeks, and we traveled for another three weeks, and it was an amazing, fun, awesome adventure of a summer. Uh, and so as I thought about that, then as listening to Blake last week, as he wrapped up an incredible three-week series walking us from Genesis to Revelation, hope you're not tired, right? I'm as amazing. Uh, he spent about two minutes last week talking about heaven, and I thought, wow, two minutes to kind of fly by that great topic. I want to stop and spend some time and kind of unpack that topic for us as a church body. And really, as I think about that even further, I, one of the things that has struck me often as I think about the topic of heaven is that I spent two months studying, researching, thinking deeply, and planning for two months in Europe. You know, for those of us who know Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior, that we are confident that we're going to spend all of eternity with Christ in heaven, many of us have really spent very little time thinking deeply about heaven. That if I were to ask you, what will heaven be like? A lot of us kind of maybe stumble or stumble and stammer and, and not really sure what to say or, or really how to describe what heaven will actually be like. So what I want to do for us this morning in the 40 minutes that we have is I want to open the word and I want to spend a little bit of time asking that basic question, what will heaven be like? Honest, honestly, I think for many of us, maybe we've not thought deeply about it because if we're honest with one another, it's not just that maybe we're ambiguous about what heaven will be like, but we're really maybe not actually that very excited at all. I want to give you a few quotes from people who have said, hey, here's kind of how I feel about heaven. One said this, that eternity is an unending church service. We have settled on an image of the never-ending sing-along in the sky. I apologize, worship team. This isn't about you, all right? You guys are awesome. One great hymn after another, forever and ever, amen, and our heart sinks. Forever and ever? That's it? That's the good news? And then we sigh and feel guilty that we are not more spiritual. How about this? One person said, I can't stand the thought of endless tedium. To float around in the clouds with nothing to do but strum a harp? <laughs> I don't know why we're hating on harps, but we're going to today, all right? So get ready. It's all so terribly boring. Heaven doesn't sound much better than hell, and I'd rather be annihilated than spend eternity in a place like that. It's a little bit harsh. But as you think about heaven, what will heaven actually be like? What will we actually do? How, how will we actually begin to characterize and begin to think and consider what our experience will be like for all of eternity? I think for many of us, we don't know how to answer that question. We're very unclear. We're very ambiguous about it. And I think for many of us, maybe we haven't actually stopped 
researched, thought deeply, and studied into the topic because maybe A, we don't know where to go, or B, we're just frankly bored with the very things that we think it will be like. And so we don't go further. What I want to do this morning for us for these 40 minutes that we have is I want us to jump into it and think about what heaven will be like. And I want to give you three basic ideas this morning as to what heaven will be like. And the first is this. As we begin to think about what heaven will be like, what God is going to recreate and renew and bring to, to fulfillment, it's going to be something that is incredibly concrete. That as you think about what heaven will be, it is going to be something that is exceedingly concrete. Look with me, if you will, Revelation chapter 21. We're going to pick it up in verse 1 this morning. Revelation 21, picking it up in verse 1. John tells us this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And John begins to imagine what the new heavens and new earth will be like. He imagines a city, the Jerusalem, coming down from heaven. Where? On earth. That as John envisions what is to come in the future, what he envisions of what heaven will be like is something that is exceedingly concrete because it is on earth and it is earthly. What John imagines is something that is concrete because it's on earth and it's earthly. Uh, In fact, I love this quote from Paul Marshall. He says this, that our destiny is an earthly one. A new earth, an earth redeemed and transfigured, an earth reunited with heaven, but an earth nevertheless. Some of you guys are hiking people, hunting people. You love Mother Nature. I consider Mother Nature to be a very vengeful woman. All right, She's got issues and she's out to get us. Okay, uh, I would prefer Wi-Fi and just air conditioning. That's just kind of the way I roll. Okay, and that's fine. And so not all of us maybe have the love-hate or the hate relationship I have with Mother Nature. Okay, Some of us love it. Some of us want to live in it. Some of us want to get out from it. So wherever you are with Mother Nature and your experience of it, here's the deal. What heaven will be one day is actually going to be a redeemed and a restored earthly Mother Nature. It's all that is right and all that is good with Mother Nature. It's all that is good with the world and the created order. That is what we're going to have in the future that is to come. It's concrete. I want you guys to see even further that it's not just that it's earthy, but God is going to recreate the earth and he's going to renew it. In fact, we're going to get a picture of that from Romans chapter 8, where the first thing that we see, the thing that we often think most about is the physical body that is resurrected. Romans chapter 8 tells us this, speaking of the physical body, it says this, that we groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoptions as sons, the redemption of our body. That as we think down towards the future, as we think about what God will do in the future, it's not this that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross to forgive us of our sins and to redeem, restore, and resurrect our soul He's not just going to resurrect our soul in the immaterial aspect of who we are, but he's also going to resurrect and redeem and restore the physical aspect of who we are. That in Genesis, God created us, or he created us in the image of God, but he created us material and he created us immaterial. And what we find as we walk in the New Testament is that Christ died to restore us and redeem us and resurrect us, not just the material aspect of who we are, but also the immaterial. Or sorry, not just the immaterial, but also the material that we often think it's all about our soul. It's all about forgiveness, and it is, but it's not just that. It's also about the resurrection of the very physical beings and bodies that we have. And what we see that God's going to do with uh, our physical resurrection bodies, he's also going to do with the entirety of the physical creation. Just a few verses before this, Paul says this about the creation itself. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility and hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The day is coming then not just that God will resurrect those that know him in their physical bodies, but he will also resurrect and restore and bring about a restoration of the entire physical order. 
Not just that which is immaterial, but that which is material. He will resurrect it. He will recycle it. He will renew it completely. And so as we ask the question, what will heaven be like? The first thing that we grasp exceedingly clearly is that it will be physical. It will be earthly. It will be concrete. Anthony Hoakum says it this way. The work of Christ, therefore, is not just to save certain individuals and not, not even to save an innumerable throng of blood-brought people. The total work of Christ is nothing less than to redeem this entire creation from the effects of sin. That purpose will not be accomplished until God has ushered in the new earth, until paradise lost has become paradise regained. For some reason, I think as we think about what heaven will be like, I feel like some of us, maybe not consciously, but have a vision of God as if he's at an airplane check-in counter with one bag that he can check into the new heavens and the new earth. And it's as if we think he's got one bag with a baggage limit and all he can squeeze in is that which is immaterial, our souls. As if all he cares about, as if all he can check onto the flight is that which is immaterial, as if that's all that he values, as if he's having to make a choice. And what we see as we look at these passages in Revelation, some others I'm going to show you in a minute, is that absolutely without a shadow of doubt, what God is going to do, what the heavens will be like, is something that is concrete and earthly. It's not just that he's going to resurrect and bring about a forgiveness of sins and restoration of our souls and a writing of a relationship with him, but he's going to bring about a restoration and a writing of all things that are physical as well. That is a grand total of his purpose. That is a grand total of his salvific plan. It is both material and immaterial. It is both spiritual and it is physical. God's going to do a restoration of both of those items. So when we ask the question, what will heaven be like? It, without a shadow of a doubt, is going to be concrete. Second thing I want you guys to see this morning is that it will also be contiguous. That it will not just be concrete, but it will also be contiguous with what we see and what we experience right now. What will heaven be like? It will be something concrete and something that is contiguous with what you and I see right now. Notice again, Revelation chapter 21, verse 1 and 2. Let's go back there where we started. So then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. Notice as John tries to describe the vision that he has and what God has revealed to him, he's going to use language that provides a point of reference for something we do grasp to, shy, to provide us a trajectory of what we can anticipate in the future. He says what you can grasp, what you can begin to imagine is that a city is going to come down from heaven onto earth. He's going to go on further to describe it. Notice how he's constantly going to describe it with something that we know. Notice verse 10 and 11. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain. And he showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like a very costly stone as a stone of crystal clear jasper. To be perfectly honest with you, I have no idea what jasper is. Uh, maybe some of you guys with precious stones and whatever know, all right? But again, he's trying to describe what it's going to be like based on something that we already understand. He goes even further. Notice verse 16, what he says. He says, the city is laid out as a square and its length is as great as its width. And, the me- and he measured the city with the rod 1,500 miles. Its length and width and height are equal. It says the city is going to come forth from heaven on earth, and it's going to be 1,500 miles as a square that's laid out. Is he being literal? Will it literally be 1,500 miles? I don't know. But is he trying to describe it in a manner that provides us some sense of experience now that would provide us a sense of continuity to what we could expect in the future? Absolutely. That's why I think he describes it this way. One more verse for you guys as we think about what this is going to be like. 
verse chapter 22, verse 1. Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb, in the middle of its street. And on either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Is there a literal river running through the new heavens and earth? I think so. Is he describing it in a way, though, that absolutely uh, unequivocally clarifies and describes perfectly what we can expect? No. But is he describing it in a way that provides us a sense of what we possibly could expect, that we could have a continuity with our understanding to what's coming? I think so. I think much of the book of Revelation is about figurative language that is providing us a point of reference of what we can understand to point us toward what we can anticipate. I don't think it's like sci-fi language in which we have some point of reference that doesn't exist to imagine something that we cannot imagine at all. It's interesting, as I go on an adventure, as I go towards something, I have a hard time getting excited for it if I have no traction on what I can actually expect. The more traction I get, the more clarity I can get as to what I can imagine is coming, the more excited I can get. And I think what the writer, or what John is trying to do, what God is trying to reveal to us as we think about what heaven will be like is to say that it will be concrete and it will be contiguous with what you experience and what you see right now. That it's not going to be entirely unlike what you experience right now. When I was a kid, I, for whatever reason, got way into thinking that one day I would be like an architect or a designer of resorts. I just thought it'd be really cool to design resorts. I don't know why. It just kind of grabbed my, my attention at one point in time. And one of the things I always loved was as you come into a resort, this little retreat from the world, you walk through or you drive through a resort entrance that some kind, cases is simple, some cases is, is elaborate and ornate, but it always provides you some sense of what to expect when you get past the entrance. No one ever pulls through a resort entrance and thinks, hey, I'm going to unpack my bags and unpack the car right here and set up shop. No, it's always meant to provide you a preview of what's coming when you finally get through the doors and through the entrance. I think what we begin to get a sense of as we think about what heaven will be like is that right now what you and I experience is simply a imperfect resort entrance, a signpost pointing toward what you and I can experience of what's to come. Because today has some level of continuity with what's coming. That what's coming is not entirely unlike what you and I see right now, but just perfected in a magnitude of a thousand or a million times what you and I see right now. That the best mountain, the best sunrise, the best view, the best shoreline experience you could ever have is a glimpse, it is a preview, it is a taste of ultimately what's coming in a very physical and earthly future to come. Even first, I, I think as we think about this correspondence to creation, that ultimately we see it even in of ourselves. Or <clears throat> notice what Jesus says, even as we see him post-resurrection in the Gospels. In terms of that which is coming, having continuity with what has been seen before, Jesus shows up to his disciples and he says, See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones. We recognize that when Jesus first showed up on the scene post-resurrection, and, and as he appeared to some, that, that initially some of them missed him. Some of them didn't see him. But eventually, over time, they began to recognize him because they recognized that there was some sense of continuity of the pre-resurrected Christ to the post-resurrected Christ. That it wasn't an entirely new person, so to speak, but there was continuity and correspondence to who Christ was pre-resurrection with who he was post-resurrection. I think the same is true for you and I as we think about personal resurrection. That who you and I are will not be shattered or annihilated as we think about the future. I love this quote. It says, uh, we can banish all fear of being absorbed into the all which Buddhism holds before us. Or reincarnated in some other life form as in the post-mortem prospect of Hinduism. The self with which we were endowed by the creator and his gift of life to us. The self 
whose worth was secured forever in the self-substitution of God for us on the cross, that that self will endure into eternity. Death cannot destroy us. That as you think about what heaven will be like, as you think about yourself in heaven, there is going to be a correspondence with who you are now, with who you will be in a post-resurrected world. What will heaven be like? There will be continuity. There will be a contiguousness of who you are now with who you will be in that day. You're not annihilated. You're not remained new as if you were some entirely new person, right? There's going to be correspondence of yourself, of your memories, of your experiences, of who you are and who God's made you to be. And it's not just that there's a correspondence of you personally. There's also a correspondence of a creational order that's restored and renewed as well. Again, there's a continuity with what you and I see today with what's coming. I love that we see in Genesis that we're going to have a garden that descends and is created. But in Revelation, what we see is that there's going to be a city. That the created order that began raw and undeveloped will be reushered and remade new, but as a developed created order in the form of a city, but not as a gathering place of sin and evil and crime, but as a gathering place of the people of God in a matured, developed, and perfect created order in which we walk in and have a relationship face-to-face with the living God. What will heaven be like? It will be concrete, and it will have continuity with what we see and with what we experience now. It's not entirely unlike what you and I see and experience now, but just at a magnitude and exponentially way greater than anything that you and I see and experience right now. Which means it's not just concrete, it's not just contagious, but lastly, this is where we're going to wrap up this morning, this last point, it's going to be compelling. I wholeheartedly believe that for those of us who've trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, we have a confidence that we're going to spend all of eternity with Jesus Christ forever. Satan, having lost that battle, I think Satan shifts to a new battle, in which I don't think he challenges our belief often in the existence of heaven. I think he challenges us in our belief and our excitement for heaven. I don't think he challenges us as to whether we believe that heaven will exist or not. I think he challenges us and he dulls us to believe that it will not be that exciting, that it will not be that compelling. So why live for it and why look towards it? What I want to do for you guys this morning as we wrap up is I want to give you a little sense of exactly what I think we will be doing in heaven. Uh, What is it we can imagine, not just what it will be like, but who we will be and what will we be doing in heaven as we think about it in the future. A few ideas for you. The first is this. I think that we will be feasters. That we will be feasters. Notice chapter 22, verse 1 again. Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb, and in the middle of its street. And on either side of the river there was a tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. We will be vegetarians in the new, in the new day. I actually don't know that. I'm just throwing that out there, all right? <laughs> Please don't tell Blake. Blake will be like, please never speak again, okay? Uh, But I do think, as we think about what is coming in the future, that I do think we actually will be feasters. There's so many scriptures that speak, even the Old Testament through the New Testament, of the day that is going to come as if it's a a wedding feast. That the idea of eating and drinking, I think, is not necessarily going to be completely foreign and uncommon to what our experience might be like in the future. It's interesting, as you and I think about hunger and thirst today, we often think about it in very negative ways. Uh, I will admit to you that uh, I don't just fear hunger. I fear the fear of hunger, so I eat preemptively. All right, I like to get out in front of it. So if you ever want to have a lunch with me and you say, hey, let's meet at 1 o'clock, I'm going to say, I'll have coffee with you at 1 o'clock. But I'm having lunch, all right, by 11.30 sometimes, okay? I love to eat. I I love food. Whether it's a birthday deal or whether it's a, a special occasion, a meal and a good meal is so enjoyable. 
Clearly, we can go to gluttony. We can go way far past what is normal and good. Dr. Pepper is the nectar of the great God of himself, all right? Ought to be the official Dr. Er, soda of Texas, all right? But I digress. I think we will be feasters. I think the description of verses 1 and 2 is not just completely figurative. I think it's possible that we actually will eat and drink. Uh, think about Jesus in the Gospels post-resurrection. He eats fish with the disciples as he appears to them. I don't know where the fish went. I think it's interesting that he ate. I love this quote, though, as we begin to think and imagine what could be. Uh, it says, you will have the sweet longing of desire that it can be fulfilled and shall be again and again and again. Heaven is not the absence of longing, but it is its fulfillment. Heaven is not the absence of itches. It is a satisfying scratch for every itch. I don't know why, but I like the itch idea there, right? That when we think about hunger and thirst, we often think about it being unmet. We think about uh, poverty. We think about hunger. We think about starvation, all these things that are evil in our world. But the idea of hunger and thirst may not necessarily be inherently evil if it's satisfied in a constant abundance of what God has provided. I think we're going to be feasters. I also think we're going to be learners. Some of us may kind of move in a different direction on this, but a passage like 1 Corinthians 13, 12, I think can kind of lead us astray a little bit here. 1 Corinthians 13, 12, Paul says this, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully. We recognize that here before we're in the presence of Jesus himself, that we see, but dimly we see, but partially. That a day is going to come when we stand in the presence of God himself and we will see him face to face. I think what Paul is saying, though, in terms of us knowing fully is not that the day that we show up, that we will know Christ fully. One of the beauties of marriage is that in almost 20 years of marriage to my wife, the amount that I know her today than the amount that I knew her way back when when we first started dating has grown exponentially. Marriage is not a static reality. It's not a static relationship. It's a dynamic one that changes as people change over time and as you grow in your knowledge of one another. I think as we think about heaven and thinking about being in the presence of Christ, I don't think we show up, see Christ face to face, and now know all things. I think we begin an internal long pursuit to know more deeply and to know more richly and to plumb the depths of the wisdom, the magnifold grace and understanding of who God is. Some of you guys love to be readers in the evening because you are lifelong learners. If that's you, that's what heaven's going to be like because you're never going to plumb the depths of all the knowledge that exists. You're going to have all of eternity to know God more deeply and to know his created order and what he's created and what he's made more deeply. There will never be a day that you have finally plumbed the depths and you've arrived at full knowledge and full understanding. It will be an internal long pursuit to learn and to know. It will be dynamic and not static. It's not just that I think we're going to be feasters and learners. I also think we're going to be workers. I think we're going to be tasked. I think we're going to have things to do. Notice verse 3. There will no longer be any curse in the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it and his bondservants will serve him. Apparently, we will be tasked in the new heavens and the new earth. We will serve the, created, uh, the, the creator. Verse 5, And there will no longer be any night, and they will not have need of the light of the lamp nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. So we will serve, and we will reign forever and ever. We will be tasked, we will be commissioned, and I think we will work. I love this concept of work because in Genesis 1, I think God creates Adam and Eve in his image. He puts them in the garden and he commissions Adam and Eve to create, to cultivate, to form, and to work. That God worked for six days and then he rested. And then he invited Adam and Eve, his created, uh, those that were created in his image, to join him in that great task, that great vocation of work, and he invites them into it. We see a garden that is uncultivated and unformed in Genesis 1. They're going to cultivate, form, and shape, and maintain as a work. 
we're going to see a city emerge out of uh, a city, the new Jerusalem emerge out of heaven on earth. And I think we're going to have the opportunity to work. I think for so many of us where work is unsatisfying for you students, where you find your professors are out of touch with reality and what you need, right? For many of us that have bosses that are difficult or we have tasks and jobs and projects that never materialize and come forth like we want, work is difficult. Work is hard today. But there's still an inherent dignity to work and beauty of work that I think we're going to have an opportunity to be ushered into and brought back into for all of eternity. I don't think we're just floating around with nothing to do but strum our harp. I think we're going to have an opportunity to be tasked in manners that fit our passions, that fit our gifting, and those tasks will be brought to fulfillment and beauty fulfilled and worked out in ways that do not have the same level of frustration and disappointment that we see today. I think we're going to work. Two last ideas for you guys. We're going to be feasters, learners, workers, and I think we'll be family members. We're going to be a part of God's family, and ruling the universe is going to be the family business. It isn't that there is entirely no marriage in heaven, but there is one marriage that trumps all others, and that is the marriage of the church with the groom, which is Jesus Christ. I think there are going to be knowledge of relationships. I, my wife and I have had multiple miscarriages. I, I firm, wholeheartedly firmly believe that my kids are going to greet me in heaven the moment I show up, and I never knew them, and they're going to be there to say, hey, Dad, let me show you around, bud. <laughs> all right? My mom who passed away a couple years ago, I think she's going to be there. I think we're gonna, I'm going to know her. I'm going to reconnect with her. I think there's a continuity of self today with who I will be a post-resurrected. I think there's going to be a continuity of some level of relationships, but there's going to be one family and one marriage that will trump them all, and that is the church with Christ himself. We're all going to be a part of a family. Fifth last idea for you, and that's the role we'll wrap up this morning, is that we will all be worshipers. Notice chapter 22, verse 8. Notice where this section ends as John concludes in light of the great vision that God has given him. Verse 8. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. That John's natural response in light of what he's seen, in light of what he's heard, is he hits the deck hard and he worships. What does that mean for us? I think the natural response when you and I begin to get a, a clearer sense of exactly what heaven will be is worship. It's not merely and it's not only the proclamation of truths in song, right? Especially with a harp or not with a harp, okay? Uh, but it's, it's the appreciation and it's the gratitude of an enjoyment of the creator himself and his creation. In whatever context of life we find ourselves in, to worship is to live in, ali- in alignment to who he is and an enjoyment of what he's provided. And that what we're going to have an opportunity to do for all of eternity is to enjoy God to the hilt and to enjoy his creation as well. So what do we do with that this morning? First of all, let me just say, if, if today kind of begins to kind of, for the first time, help you think a little bit more deeply about heaven, this is still a short amount of time for something that you're going to spend an eternity to, right? I spent two months prepping for a Europe trip that was two months long, right? <laughs> if this is a place we're going to spend an eternity, then I think it's something we ought to think more deeply and a way longer about. I think one of the greatest resources that exists that's out there, if you want to think more about that topic of heaven, is Randy Alcorn wrote a book on heaven. Uh, look up Randy Alcorn, go to Amazon. Great book, great resource for you to think more deeply if you have more questions about it than I can answer. Uh, it's a great opportunity to go there. Second thing I'd say is I think as we think about our current day and our current time, I think there are things that bring disappointment, heartache, and grief that I think God allows at times in our lives to arouse us and to awake us to the fact that today is not the day that we're ultimately longing for. 
That as you and I begin to get a sense of what heaven will be like, what, what ought to ring true, what ought to scream out, is that while there is a concreteness and a continuity with what we experience today, with what's coming, what's coming blows away in all comparison to what you and I experience right now. And whether it's due to sin or whether it's due to a broken world, when you and I experience difficulty, pain, grief, sorrow, I think there are moments in which God allows that to awake us to the fact that this is not the day that we're ultimately longing for and looking for. And sometimes what the world can do is like a powerful anesthetic that just calms and dulls our longings and our hopes and our dreams to begin to think that this is all that we need. And there is something rich, there is something significant that even is available today, but it's nothing compared to what's coming. And so if you're going through a stretch where you recognize, wow, there's just some real difficulties I'm grinding through and struggling through, one of the things I'd say to you this morning is, is to lift your gaze past what you're experiencing to a day that's coming that will bring restoration to all of those difficulties and all of those items as God intended it to be. And that sometimes I think the Lord allows us to experience those pains to lift our eyes and lift our gaze above to a day that's coming beyond just what we experience today. For some of us, maybe you're on the different end of the spectrum in which you are trucking along and things are just rolling and they are great, right? What I'd say to you is, as great as things are, again, let me say to you, there's something even greater coming. Be careful and be aware to let the glories, the successes, the accomplishments, the victories of today, like, an, uh, like, a, like, a, like a deal that will kind of dull you from ultimately what you're ultimately looking for and longing for, that today will never ultimately satisfy us. That even in our walk with Christ, Romans will say, Paul will say that we groan inwardly within ourselves looking for our day of redemption. That the best that we're going to have today and the first fruits that have been given us of the Spirit is that we are going to groan and we are going to struggle. Looking and longing for what's coming. My hope this morning for us is spending a little bit of time on this topic is that our eyes are lifted, our gaze is lifted to what's coming And we respond in worship and we respond in gratitude with a heart that is not just oriented and calibrated for today. But in the midst of what we can enjoy today that is calibrated and looking forward to what's coming. Let me pray for us. Father God, we give you great thanks. That in eternity past that you would create. That even though sin would destroy and sin would distort and deceive And crush us, Lord, that you would send your only son, Jesus Christ, who would take on human flesh, the physical. Who would give his physical life to bring about a redemption in our lives, of both the material and the immaterial, of both the physical and the spiritual. Lord, I thank you that in our lives and in what you've created, there is nothing that is ever wasted. That you take every little piece, every little puzzle piece, every little experience of our lives, and that you bring about a purpose to them, as a part of a story and as a part of your transformation of our lives, and that ultimately, as we look down the road even further, that you'll bring about a restoration of all of those things that have been created, the physical and the spiritual, the material and the immaterial, Lord, that there is nothing that you've created that you will not restore and bring about toward a restoration of all that our hearts long for and all that our hearts intend. I pray for many of us in the midst of grief and sorrow, Lord, allow us to not close over the wounds as if today will ever satisfy. Lord, allow us to wait longingly for you, trusting that your day, your time, your movement will be right. And a day will come in which you will wipe away every sorrow, every tear. Lord, let us be men and women that look for that day and that long for that day. 
whose hearts are so calibrated to be engaged in the present, but longing for a future. When your son, Jesus Christ, will return and that you will usher in a new kingdom and a city will ascend and the fulfillment of all that you've created and all that you attended is still yet to come. Lord, let us long for that day and look towards that day. Lord, we ask for these things this morning through your son and by your spirit, we pray. Amen. Church, you guys have a great Sunday and we will see you all next week. Love you guys.